All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to actually get down to verse, uh, from 5 to verse 15 is where we're going to be uh, looking this morning. The title is Be Satisfied. The pastor writing these Hebrew believers continues to call them to holiness and proper conduct as those that are privileged to be called into the new covenant. So this is a message that he's going to say. This is a covenant that they are participating in that Jesus, the Messiah, has inaugurated. And he's going to exhort them to have contentment in their financial state. But he's also going to exhort them to have contentment in their spiritual experience in the new covenant, a repeated theme throughout the book of Hebrews. So that's where we're headed. Be satisfied. We're going to read verses 5 and 6 to begin with where we talk about that physical contentment and in, um, in, in what we have. So let's read that. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So a call to contentment. Now, in this, it's interesting because we begin at verse 1 with let brotherly love Philadelphia. Let that continue. Then in verse 2, he says, um, entertain strangers, which is the Greek word philoxenia, is love of strangers. Now, as we come down to verse 5, it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Covetousness here is philar. Um, Philarguras, which is two, well, it's actually it's broken down in three pieces. You have the alpha at the beginning, which often serves to negate whatever that word is communicating or action. Um, philos is lover, and then Arguras, that is, that's the word silver. Don't love silver. That's, that's the idea behind this word. But as you look at it in the Greek, it's this, you know, he's using three different words that are all very similar. Um, with uh, brotherly love, strangers, and then negatively, don't love, covetousness. And this is not the most common word in the New Testament for covetousness, but, but it, it's essentially the same idea as the other ones. And that is that we are to be um, satisfied with what we have. We are to be con in contentment. Now, the Bible gives many warnings throughout Scripture about our relationship with, with money, with belongings, with possessions. And throughout the, the Old Testament, into the New Testament, covetousness, loving of silver, loving of belongings, this is something that is forbidden. Um, the man who was the wealthiest man in Scripture, King Solomon, he was so wealthy, the Bible says, that silver was as common as, does anybody know? Rocks. That's, that's a lot of silver, isn't it? Especially if you've ever been to Jerusalem. You see, there, there, everything is a rock. There's barely dirt. I mean, it's just like everything is a rock. And so he says, the, the, the commentary says on him that there was more silver than there were rocks. But this is what that man says in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase, which is really the very opposite of what you would expect, isn't it? If you love silver and you get more silver, you think you would be satisfied that you have more silver, but that's not what it does. It's like when um, 
You, somebody says, hey, you want to eat? And you're like, well, I'm not really that hungry. And then you take one bite and it's like, wah. You know, you, it's like now you want to consume all food around you and you're eating it and you're devouring it. It's like, I thought you weren't hungry. Well, I wasn't hungry until I had my first bite and then I realized I was starving. And that's what happens with, with greed. That's what happens with materialism. Once you take, once you begin to walk down that, it becomes this ravenous wolf that you cannot give enough to. He who loves silver, you're not going to be satisfied with silver. So if in your mind you're thinking, well, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to just take care of this financial things in my life. I'm going to get a little bit bigger nest egg. I'm going to get this one more thing. I'm going to get that taken care of. And then I'm really going to get serious about the kingdom of God. That's not what the Bible says. The Lord says it doesn't work that way. Proverbs 15, 27, he who is greedy for gain troubles his own house. What you're going to do is you're going to bring trouble into your house. What, if I have more money, if I get a pay raise? No, not that. Not that. We're not saying that having money or even having a lot of money or even having being, you know, uber rich, that that means you're a covetous person. That's, you could be poor and be covetous. So this is not, you know, you know, we're going to measure covetousness by how much money you have or how blessed you are. No, actually, God is the one that made Abraham rich. And he gave him those things that he might enjoy them. So God is the one that can give that increase and he can bring blessing. The problem is if you love silver, Ecclesiastes 5.10, or Proverbs 15.27, you're greedy for gain. It's that desire that's willing to put aside spiritual pursuit and focusing upon the kingdom of God, like your family and the church and the mission and walking in your giftedness. It's like, I can't do it now because I've got to just get this, I got to get this money together first. That's the problem. And what that is, well, Ephesians 5, 5 says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is a what? Idolater. To put aside the pursuit of the kingdom of God and its priorities to go and gain more stuff is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Well, I'm not saying I love this stuff. If you are forsaking the word of the Lord to pursue your own agenda, you love that more than you love the Lord. Jesus said, why do you say you love me if you don't obey me? Why do you call me Lord and then go do what you want to do? So the Bible has a lot to say about this. Now, we've been called to have contentment. So don't let your conduct have covetousness. That's a negative. But positively, be content. Be satisfied. Be at rest what the Lord has provided for you. Be content with such things as you have. What do you have in your bank account? What do you have in your possession? Be content with that. Be at peace. Rest with what you have. Well, how can I do that? Well, by knowing who's taking care of you. It says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So we can have contentment because it's God who's taking care of us. And it's interesting, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So there is five negative words 
in that one little phrase, I will never leave you nor forsake you in the Greek language. It's two double negatives and then the word nor, that conjunction is a negative as well. And so in, in Greek, if you, the strongest way to say no to something is to use two little Greek words, ume. And you find that, that couplet of words twice with a conjunction that's negative. You get the idea? I mean, he can't say it any stronger. And that is that the Lord will never, he's always going to be there for you. Well, if I know that the Lord is always going to be there and he can never, ever forsake me, now I can rest in what I have. Because as the psalmist said, Psalm 23, help me, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. If the Lord is your shepherd, He's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. So now I can rest in what he has provided. Yeah, but I still need more. Do you need more? I mean, it may look like you need more. It may feel like you need more. But do you need more? Did you make it through yesterday? Then you had enough. Yeah, but, I mean, things are going to, it's today. Everything's going to happen. Listen, God can rearrange our finances. And let me just put this scenario out there. If you knew that God had to rearrange your finances or our finances so that our hearts would not be overcome with greed, would I, would you be okay with that? In other words, if God had to decrease what I have or make certain that I never have more than I have so that my heart is not led astray, am I okay? Am I more than okay? Am I thankful that God is withholding? I hope the answer is yes. Hold back. Hold it back. Don't, Lord, if, if one more dollar, if one more success financially is going to cause me to stop looking to you, then never let that dollar come. Let me just keep trusting in you. So the point is this. The Lord knows the future. He knows what's going to turn our heart or our mind. So if I don't have more, maybe it's because we don't need more. And so because God's in control... I'm resting in him. I'm resting in him. I mean, you know, if you live long enough, you look back on your financial decisions and you think that was a mistake. And I've told her. I mean, like, if I was to say the biggest financial mistake I ever made, Rebecca could finish out that thing. And I say that, but I was pondering this. It's like, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't because we are praying and we're seeking the Lord. So maybe that which I can stand back and evaluate with financial sense, however much I have of that, I don't really know. But I can evaluate that. But really, maybe the reason it didn't come into my mind or I didn't feel compelled to do that in prayer is because the Lord's like, you don't need that. You, you don't know what that would have done. And so I can stand back and rather than going, oh, man, I got to get that opportunity back, I can just say, he's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me. And so we need to be very careful um, with this. So he's not going to forsake you. He's going to take care of you. And then there in verse 6, Hebrews 13, um, for the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So this is like, well, we're talking about like covetousness and me making sure I'm not, you know, gaining too much, um, uh, you know, allowing greed to take too much of my heart and seeking after that. But now it's talking about being attacked. You know, what can man do to me? Well, that's because often a person's belongings are taken away for their faith in Jesus Christ. 
We don't feel that so much here in the United States, but they do around the world. This very hour, there are those because of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their buildings have been burned down, their homes have been burned, and other financial harm has come. So by being faithful and following Jesus, it's going to cost me financially. But the statement is, but the Lord is your helper. So if the attack comes, don't be afraid of the attack. Don't compromise for riches. Don't say, well, no, actually, no, I'm, not, I'm not going to that you know, church anymore. I'm back at the temple, you know, Judah. I'm back at the temple, so you can feel good to buy my, my stuff here. It's like, no. If Judah doesn't want to buy your stuff because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, don't be afraid. The Lord is going to take care of you. So I think this kind of ties into the, a bit of what they were suffering. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, let them do good. And the them in this context, you can read it on your own, but the them of verse 18 is the rich people, rich brothers and sisters. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works. All right, you're rich in money, now be rich in good works. Ready to give, willing to share. Which I can, a lot of you think, that's right, let the rich people, man, they need to do a better job. It's those rich people. Well, who's the rich people? I mean, it, it, if you think about this in a global sense, in a historical sense, the conclusion you will come up to objectively is we are the rich people. We are the ones that have been given much, so much. We have homes. We have places to live. We have food. We have clothing. And, and we probably have cupboards and closet full of those things. And, you know, if you don't, then you just, you got to just let us know and we're, we're happy to help you out in, in that. Let us know what we can do, the body of Christ. If we don't want you to be hungry. You don't want you to be without clothing. But we need to be rich in good works. That's us. We need to faithfully use our resources. And don't say, well, when I get more, then I'll be faithful. Because here's the bottom, here's the, here's the, here's the, the bottom line. If you make 100 bucks and you can't be steward, I'll just say 10 because we often speak in tithe. But whatever that amount is, you can't give 10 to the Lord when you have 100. Do you think when you have 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 or a million, you're going to be able to give that up? You're not. Because it's a principle of stewardship. It's not a principle of amount. It's a, it's a matter of trusting the Lord and doing good with what I have. And so all of us have something in our hand materially to do good with. All of us. And if we don't do that, we are missing out. Oh, you mean you're missing out, Troy? No. You know, listen, we have... We have a lot of ministry that we're doing. The Lord continues to expand opportunities to go and to reach out into our own community. We've got things that, are, that the Lord is doing. It's going to take the faithful giving of the body of Christ, and you're doing that. So, no, that's not it. You're missing out. The Lord is going to do what he wants to do. The question is, do you get to be a part of what the Lord wants to do with what he's given to you? And so uh, this is the stewardship point that, that we really need to, to walk in is that I don't want to just be rich by world standards, if we can all agree on that. I know we're going to get some pushback. But, you know, if we're rich by the world standards, then what am I doing with what I have to be rich in good works? As Paul told uh, the Philippians, it, you have an, they had an account in heaven, and God was 
crediting their support of him financially to their account in heaven. That's wild to think about. I mean, you got your, your checking account, you got your retirement account, you got this, you got that account, but you got an account in heaven. And your name is on it, and my name is on it. And the Lord is going to hold us accountable to have used these resources wisely for the kingdom's sake. And so I'm not going to tell you how much to give. I'm not going to tell you where to give. I'm going to say be faithful to give. This is what the Bible says is that we should be, and I, I pray it almost every single Sunday, be joyful and be generous. That's how we give. We are to be joyful, generous people. That's what the New Testament teaches. And so walk it out. And here's the beauty. When you are joyful and generous, you will cut the cords of materialism. It sets you free. The last thing a greedy, idolatrous person wants to do is give stuff away. The most important thing a greedy, idolatrous person can do is what? Give stuff away in the name of Christ. And to take care. And now you are set free. Be careful of materialism and living for stuff. Madam Blueberry was asked, <laughs> you know, how much stuff she wanted. And she said, how much stuff is there? You know? And, and you're like, what is he even talking about? What, what's wrong with it? It's veggie tails. You have to take a theology class every now and then. You know what I'm saying? So, so you know, they're illustrating materialism, and she wanted more and more stuff. How much stuff do you want? Well, how much stuff is there? I want more. we got to be content with what we have. And that's not just for you. That's, that's for Troy and Rebecca, too. we got to be content, and we got to use what we have for the kingdom and the glory of God. It's wild to think about being in heaven and having that account evaluated by the Lord, isn't it? And also, what kind of, how much fun is that going to be? How much fun is that? Say, so you know, you gave that 10 bucks, and you want to know what I did with that 10 bucks? This is what I did. And you're, I think we're going to sit back, and we're going to be like, our heads are, are going to drop, or our hands are going to go up, or we're going to bow down and say, Lord, you took that little bit of money I gave, and you did all of this? Yeah, that's what I do with loaves and fishes. Just give me a little bit. Just give me a little bit. Just give me that. And I'll do it. So listen, we need to be liberated from money. And the way to do that is to become focused upon the kingdom, knowing that the Lord is going to take care of us. So be satisfied with what you have. Verses 7 through 9, we're going to talk about remembering those who lead us. So now we go into this section that's going to talk about being satisfied in the new covenant, in this walk with Jesus. Remembering those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, not with works, which have not profited, They've not established those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar. Oh, we'll stop right there. So here he begins to talk about remembering those who lead you. They were used to the priests. They were used to the kings leading them. And so now under the new covenant, it's like, remember those who lead you. Now, again, they were thinking about maybe 
compromising the faith, at least they felt it, um, and not, you know, in order to gain some more stuff. But he says, now think about those who lead you. Think about those who taught you, spoke the word to you. Think about the, those that you imitate your life after, you follow their faith, and think about their outcome. These three things are things for us to consider and remember. Who's taught you? Who are you imitating? And what is the outcome of their life? Exemplify your godly leaders. Now, maybe these were leaders, because he speaks in the past tense there in that second phrase of verse 7. Maybe they've gone. Maybe they've passed from the scene. Maybe they're no longer around. And he says, but, you know, remember what they said to you. Remember this. And then, you know, you're following them. Remember this. You're following good people. And then consider where they are now. Consider their outcome. And we all have the different people in our lives. And I've been blessed to have a lot of people like that. Um, in my life that um, has spoken the word to me, whose faith I follow, and, um, and I'm able to consider their outcome. But for me, one of these individuals is, is Pastor Chuck Smith. And, um, and I'm just watching how he did things, how he lived, how he, he spoke, how he conducted himself in ministry. And, and so w- what is his outcome right now? Oh, he's sitting in the presence of Jesus. He's in the throne room of the Lord. He's, re- he's received the reward of his faithful service. And so we have those people. We need to exemplify those people that God brings into our life. And then verse 8, you get the ultimate leader. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So yesterday, he died on the cross. Today, he's at the right hand of the Father interceding. And forever, he will welcome us into his presence and we will be with him. To be absent from this body is to be present with Christ. You know, some leaders, um, they're good and they're there for us. But then, you know, like Pastor Chuck, they're taken away. And if I can just say they fail us, right? They're not there because their bodies failed, and so they're not there. You're going to have a time when those people you look to are not going to be there for you. But, verse 8, Jesus is always there for you. And I I think it's offensive to Jesus when he said, nobody was there for me. And he's like, really? I mean, like nobody was there for you. I went to the cross for you. I'm interceding for you. I'm preparing a place for you. You're saying, no, what do you mean? What about me? I think sometimes when you reach out to somebody and you don't hear back from them, you're like, man, why aren't they calling me back? They always call me back. Or they didn't call me back. Or, you you know, I need some advice. I need some counsel. I think sometimes the Lord is saying, yeah, I'm not going to let that email go through. I'm going to let it get buried in their, their inbox. Why? Because you don't listen to me enough. You always want to talk to them. You always want to hear what they have to say. No, listen, I'm a fan of fellowship. I'm a fan of getting good godly counsel from brothers and sisters. But if they become Messiah, then something's got to change. Because it's only Jesus that's going to be that one that's there yesterday, today, and forever. And so we look to the Lord. And I know as I speak this out, maybe for some of you, it, it's, it, you know, it's a person that you, maybe you walked this life together with spiritually. And then they, their heart got lost. They, they lost their way, and they, they left you, and they abandoned you. And it's painful, and it's hard. But you know what? Jesus is the same. He's not going to forsake you. He is going to be there for you 
in all times. And it's good to have these people. I mean, I think of, I, many times I said to Rebecca, as, I, as we were going through COVID and all of these things, I was like, man, I wish Pastor Chuck was still alive. I'd love to hear him just speak on this issue and just see what he has to say and the wisdom that he could have gave us. And, and um, because I, I remember when the, how many of you remember Y2K crisis that never happened? Yeah. I know you're probably still eating your beans and rice, some of you. So, um, you know, so Y2K crisis, you younger people, when it, we went from 1999 to 2000, there was a big, you know, fear that was out there. The computers weren't going to, you know, know what to do with this. And everything was going to shut down and there wasn't going to be power and people were buying generators and, you know, and there, you know all of this stuff was going on. And, I, and, you know, we all wanted to hear what Pastor Chuck had to say. And he's just like, yeah, listen. He goes, if the Lord wanted us to go and do a huge supply of food and all this, I think he would come to us like he came to Joseph. And he would give us that, that clear word of prophecy that this is what we're supposed to do. And he says, but I haven't had that. So I'm just going to um, eat your food if I need to. He, so he began to, he began to, you know, he began to, you know, use a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of humor. But it spoke to all of us. Well, it spoke to me. And um, so that, that was great guidance as a young pastor, I mean, you know, when we were out here. We came here in 90, 1994, so, you know, six years into being a pastor. I was 33 years old. It was good to have that. It's good to have people around us. But you know what? Even if that, he's not, you know, I, I didn't call anybody for, for COVID. I called Jesus and, you know, leaned on him and asked him. And, you know, I love the way the Lord led us and directed us through that. So... Maybe you're feeling like, yeah, those people that used to be there, I used to follow, they're not there anymore. That's okay, Jesus is still there. And you got his number, and it's not busy. And he's willing to speak to you. Call upon him. If you have a good godly brother or sister, rejoice in the Lord. And the Lord will use them as well, but just don't lean on him too heavily. And so, yeah, follow the Lord, right? Be, be satisfied with the, those people that are around you and, and be satisfied with the leader that you have in Jesus. Um, negatively, watch out for, and I love strange doctrines. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. If you hear something weird, don't follow it. And there is so much weirdness out there that's built on some like little line of scripture that's taken out of context and they build a whole system around it and they've been caught up into the third heaven and they've come back with a video series that you can get for $99.99. <laughs> Truths that have been lost in the church since the first century. So for 1900 years, the church has not had this video series, but now God has given it to me. And you can, for $99.99, you can get it, and you too can know these secrets on how you can you know, go up into heaven and how you can have unimaginable wealth and how you can levitate. I'm not joking. I'm not, this is not hyperbole right now. This is like, I'm quoting a guy. That's weird. It's strange. And it's not founded in scripture. So you got your Bible, read it. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. This is what John says. You have no need that anyone should teach you. The Holy Spirit himself teaches you. Open the word of God, read it. And, and you know, if somebody says something, check them out. Make certain that it's true and right. It's like, well, I can't find it in the Bible, so it doesn't say not to. That is not our standard. 
The standard is, is what does it say? Not what it doesn't say, because I mean, that's everything out there that's weird and strange. So we allow the word of God to lead us and we don't get caught up with this. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with food. So the strange doctrine for them was, hey, you've got to be eating the food from the temple. If you're not eating the food from the temple that's been offered up at, that, that, you know, at the altar there, then you, you, just, you can't experience the grace of God. He's like, no, no, no. Your heart is established by grace, not by food. It's not helped them out. <laughs> so he had an opinion about those that are doing that. Um, and, you know, it's interesting as it relates to food that um, it was the food you ate could help you be ritually clean, but it could never make you inwardly holy. It could make you ritually clean, but it would never make you inwardly holy. That took a different work. That was the work of you having faith in the grace of God. Always. Old Testament, New Testament. And listen, at different times in the history of man, there's been a different relationship that man has been called to have with food. Adam, and, uh, Adam to Noah, vegetarians. Noah to Moses, if it moved, eat it. I mean, this was the, the, the thing. But then from Moses to Jesus, it was limited to what was said in the law. But after the death of Jesus, pulled pork sandwiches are on the menu. Rice, kill, and eat. I mean, it's, it's like this is what he said. So, you know, listen, you can, you, diet can be something that's subjective and eat what you're going to eat. Just don't, under the new covenant, try and make it a spiritual matter. You know, so this is the point. Um, so it's interesting how the Lord has had a different word at different times for food. But the point here is we are established by not works, but through grace. It's not going and eating the food at the temple that's going to really give you a great standing with the Lord. Look at verse 10 down to verse 14. We have an altar. So leaving the subject of the altar and the food and the temple, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle or the temple have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For there we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And that's actually, that's as far as we're going to get this morning. So here's the beauty of the new covenant. And if you can follow this, they, these were Hebrew believers. They had gone to the temple their entire life. They had made the sacrifices. They had taken the food from the sacrifices in some cases, and they would take them home and they would eat of it. And so now family and friends are like, well, what are you eating? You're not eating food that's at the temple. And he says, oh, we've, we've, got, we've got food. We have food. We have an altar. And the altar is where the animal would have been sacrificed, right? He goes, we got a place of sacrifice, and we have food, and we have food that they can't eat. Well, what is the altar? The altar is Calvary. And the Lamb of God was the one that was put up on that. And we eat of his body, and we drink of his blood. John chapter 6, verse 54. Well, let me back up. Verse 53. 
It says, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So they were rejecting Jesus Christ and the altar of Calvary, the Lamb of God. They did not eat of Jesus Christ and they did not drink. And if you do not eat and drink of Jesus, you have no eternal life. So it's like, you're worried about what you're eating? What are you talking about? Jesus died on the altar of Calvary for you. You eat and drink of his body and blood. Now, this is symbolic language, right? It's not physically eating of that. It's symbolic language, but it is his body that was broken. Read Isaiah 53. It's his body that was broken that makes us whole spiritually. It's his blood that was shed on the cross that washes us and cleanses us and makes us have a right and righteous standing with the Lord. So it's like you're worried about not having anything to eat. You have a meal to eat that they can't even come to. And I think this is a great uh, idea to consider each and every time we come to the communion table. Oh, I'm coming to the altar of the Lord. And here the Lamb of God, his body and his blood shed for me. I can eat of this. But if you don't come to Jesus, you can't eat of that. And if you don't eat of that, then you are not nourished spiritually. You are not cleansed spiritually. And you are still in your sin. And that's why you don't have eternal life. If you've not come to Jesus Christ... And acknowledge that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead for your justification. If you've not called out upon him to be your savior, then you are still in your sin. And you are not partaking of him. You are not eating of him. Therefore, you don't have eternal life. You've got to be connected to Jesus. You've got to be nourished by Jesus and at his altar. And he's the only way. And if you don't come in that way, you don't have it. Now, he goes on then to tell them, and remind them of those that, um, uh, how Jesus suffered outside the camp in verses 11 through 13. Um, so he talks about the bodies of those animals. So they would take them out, they would sacrifice them. Some would end up going outside the camp and they would be disposed of in this way. Well, when Jesus died on the altar of Calvary, Golgotha, where, where was he? He was outside the city walls. The, you know, of course, if you go there today you, you know, and look down through history, it's very hard to tell you know, walls and, and so they've changed and moved. But there are two common places that are referred to as where Jesus died, where Golgotha is. And one is the church, it's the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which if you go there, you won't want it to be there. You, you know, seriously, you go there, you're like, this is chaos. And then there's, um, there's the garden tomb, Gordon's tomb. And if you go there, you're like, yes, this feels right. But, you know, both of those spots were, you know, in 33 AD, both of them were outside of the city walls. Jesus died outside the camp. Now, he takes up the point, the writer here takes up the point, and says he suffered reproach outside the camp, so we need to be willing to follow him. And if we suffer difficulty and hardship and reproach, because we follow Jesus, then it's okay because he suffered reproach for us. So again, this group of believers, they were suffering much, had gone through much, and he wants them to, wants them to you know, understand that it's all right. This is what we've been called to. And there at verse 14, last point, 
It says, for we are, um, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So Jerusalem, not so welcoming to Jews that are followers of Jesus Christ anymore. And so they kind of lost their city. But he says, but wait a minute. Right now we don't have a city, but one's coming. And listen, the city that's coming is far better than any city of this world. And we will be in the presence of the Lord. He has gone to prepare this place for us. And one day we will be with him. We will be with him. And I, I hope this is something that gives you encouragement. It gives you joy. As you think about those that have gone before you in the faith, understand that they are in the presence of the Lord, that they are in that place that Jesus has prepared for them and find that comfort. Yeah, we're not going to, I mean, you know, Jerusalem does not mean to us what it meant to this group of believers because we're Americans living over here. Most of us have never been to Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem, there's no temple worship going on there anyway. So it doesn't have a, a, that point. But you can imagine how it would have been a big deal to them. But the point is, we have something that is, is far greater than anything in this world. And that is one day we're going to be with him. One of the real consequences of following Jesus for these Jews is that they were going to be driven out of fellowship. And the writer notes that although they might be outside the camp and they might not have a city, they're identified with the heavenly the heavenly king and the heavenly city that he's making. And that is really the important piece. So I hope as a follower of the Lord that you are, you're not worried about the, the reproach you might suffer. Well, yeah, but you know, my friends might not like me. Yeah, but think about what Jesus suffered. Think what Jesus suffered to bring you in. Well, but I might lose my business, or I might not get the promotion. i gotta, I got to bury this Jesus thing just a little bit for a little while, and then I can come out. Yeah, you don't want to do that. You want to be bold. You want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you have to suffer reproach, then our mentality should be that of what the writers of the New Testament was, as what an honor and privilege that I would be able to suffer and touch anything that Jesus suffered in. And so if I'm rejected and I'm reproached for my faith, and you will be, pause and stop and throw your hands up in the air, it says in Luke, and do a little dance for joy because you were counted worthy to suffer. That's what the Bible says. It's not like, oh, man, I'm suffering. No, it says have a little dance. Have, you know, celebrate that you have this experience going on in your life. Let's pray. Father, how wonderful it is to be connected and associated with you. Lord, we read and we, of the, in the Old Testament about the beautiful temple and the sacrifices and all the symbolism. And Lord, it was wonderful and it was beautiful. But we would much rather have the fulfillment of it all. And we do in your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that we get to partake of that altar food. Thank you that we are able to be nourished by your son and have eternal life. Lord, help us to be content with those things that we have. May we realize that you're never going to abandon us. You're never let us um, suffer um, in a way that you're not allowing. You, you, Lord, will allow us to go through trials, but maybe it's exactly what we need. The trial is exactly what we need. And so we trust you. We believe in you. We rest in you as our good shepherd. I'll give you a moment just to respond. If you are in that place in greed, 
materialism, covetousness. Again, you don't have to be rich to have any of those things going on. But it's just, it's like, it's just consuming you. It's just like you got to have that thing. And, but it's, it's not the kingdom of God that's consuming you. It's not investing, how can I spend one more dollar upon the gospel work? It's, it's, it's other thoughts going on. And may God liberate us today. You don't have to have much. This is a testimony of scripture. You don't have to have much for God to do much. Remember, who is it that gave the most in scripture according to Jesus? The one that gave two mites. Nothing. Couldn't do much with that at all. So, I, you know, I just, I feel for some of you that you're in that place where it's like, yeah, God is two mites. I'm, I'm a single mom. I'm this, I'm that. And I'm not trying to say, oh, a church needs your money. I'm not. I'm just saying, listen, don't allow that place right now to rob you of doing good. And if you can only put a quarter in, then put a quarter in. If you can only give somebody a dollar to help them out, then give a dollar. It, we measure things incorrectly so often in the church. Take what you have, what is in your hand, and use it. Don't wait for more, because when more comes, you, Satan will make certain there's something else to gobble it up. And in the meantime, not the church, you're missing out on that wonderful blessing and privilege of being a generous, joyful giver. And, um, and I hate to think that you being, you being robbed of that, any of us being robbed of that. That if you've never come to Jesus, you've never eaten of him, you never have drank of him, you've never been connected with the forgiveness that he gives, then I wanna invite you to come to the table of the Lord. I want you to come to that altar of Calvary and, and confess your sins and ask him to forgive you and he will nourish you and he will cleanse you and you will have the hope of everlasting life. You gotta do it though. Nobody can do it for you. Grandma can't do it for you. Your mom can't. You have to do it. As a matter of your will, your mouth, you've gotta confess that Jesus is the one and he's waiting and he's ready to receive you. He'll forgive you.